0: First John chapter 2 beginning in verse 3 John writes now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments he who says i know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. When I was preparing this message I flashed back to my childhood. There was a popular TV program that was on in the 50s and 60s. Most of you are way too young to remember. But Art Linkletter had a show. And it was called Kids Say the Darnedest Things. And I ran across just a couple of them. I didn't have a chance to write them out. And... One of the questions was asked by this kid, who was George Washington's wife? And the little boy answered, Miss America. (laughs) Another little kid was asked the question, interestingly enough, what's the story of Adam and Eve? And the little girl replied, one time there was God, and God made Adam out of dust. And then he put Adam to sleep, and he made Eve out of a rare rib. (laughs) A little boy then was asked, well, whatever happened to Adam and Eve? And the little boy looked at Art Linkletter, and he said, God sent them to hell, and and then he transferred them to Los Angeles. (laughs) But there was one particular episode where he asked a little boy, a question who was drawing a picture. He was furiously drawing a picture. And Art Linkletter went up to him and he said, what are you drawing? And the little boy replied, I'm drawing a picture of God. And Linkletter told the lad that no one knows what God looks like. And the small boy looked up with complete confidence, and he said, they'll know when I'm through. (laughs) The reason why I thought of that is because this is exactly what John, the apostle, is trying to do. He's trying to paint a picture of what God is really like, and over the top of the of the painting, if there were such a thing, he would write, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to really, truly, really know what God is like, he invites you to look at Jesus, to look at his life, to look at his words, to look at his character. In the ancient, as well as in the modern world, people claim that they know God they make claims and they offer explanations of what God is really like. Can I know him? And so what John is trying to convince every single person is that Jesus is the reliable picture. How can we know that we really know God? How can we be sure That our experience of salvation is real. John's letter is going to now offer a series of tests. And the first thing that he's going to do is offer a moral or a character test. This is the test of righteousness that we've just read about in verse 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. So the answer to the question, how do I know that I'm really saved? How do I know that I have a right relationship with God? How do I know that I have fellowship with God and then that we have fellowship with each other? If you really know God in Christ Jesus, you're going to grow in grace and in righteous living. Why? Because God is righteous. Does righteous living mean sinless living? It can't mean that because he's already pointed out that the person who says that they have no sin winds up lying to, them, to others, winds up lying to himself, and winds up lying to God. So we know that that's not the answer from verse 8. But it does mean that the Christian is headed in the right direction. A Christian isn't sinless, but a Christian sins less. If a person isn't increasingly dissatisfied with sin, if the person isn't distressed by sin, then he or she is probably not a child of God. If you aren't upset And convinced that your behavior matters, then that's a problem. So he's going to give a moral test now. There's going to be a social or a relational test that's going to be given in verses 7 through 11. And there's going to be a doctrinal test that's going to take place later in the chapter in verses 18 through 27. So it isn't just simply a moral test. It isn't just simply a relational test. It isn't simply a doctrinal test. It's all of these things together. It is, so, so again, here's the idea. The test seems to include something about who I am. The test seems to include something about the way that we relate to each other in love. And then there seems to be a test about the way that we relate to each other in what God has revealed in the teachings of Jesus. We might think of these three tests by asking three more questions. Number one, has my life changed? Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ and others? Do I understand And lean on the truth as it's revealed in God's word. These are the tests that John describes. When you ask the question. Am I a Christian? You know I remember when I was a kid being asked this question. Someone just sort of haphazardly said to me. Are you a Christian? And I said. Of course I am, I'm a Catholic. But you know, my response was a cultural response. I, I knew that I wasn't a Buddhist, and I knew that I wasn't a Hindu, and I knew that I wasn't an atheist, and I knew that I wasn't an agnostic. But according to John's definition, I wasn't a Christian. Because I failed the moral test and the relational test, and even the test of truth. You know, someone, if you ask them the question, even if I ask you the question, what is a Christian? You might want to give me the dictionary answer. The dictionary answer might be an adherent or a follower of Christ. By the way, the word appears three times in the Greek New Testament. In Acts chapter 11 verse 26, in Acts chapter 26 verse 18, and in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 16. In those passages, it reveals that the first disciples were called Christians in Antioch. And in Paul's presentation of the gospel to King Agrippa, as he's sharing God and he's sharing Christ, and he's, he's pleading with King Agrippa to believe the truth about Jesus, Agrippa's response was, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul's response was, would to God that you were Exactly like me, except for these chains. In Peter's passage, the exhortation reads If anyone suffers as a Christian, don't be ashamed. The word Christian seems to have been derisive when it was first invented, it was a word that wasn't meant to be complimentary, it was meant to be derogatory. But all of a sudden, the Christian adopted the word as their very own. In the popular culture, in the modern culture, it seems to have been emptied of its meaning, since almost anyone and everyone can use the term to describe their own particular view or their own brand of Christianity. So, what are we to think and what are we to do? I think what we have to do is we have to take the word back. And we have to then begin to ask and answer the question, what do I mean when I use the term Christian? And what I mean is a current follower of Jesus Christ. I don't mean somebody who used to believe or used to follow or used to do stuff, but who, does, who walks with Jesus and fulfills these tests. So we're going to look at the character test in verse 3. Look what it says. By this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. Right off the bat from the text, when John writes, by this we know that we know him. Are you left with the impression that he can be known? Yes. In other words, he's inviting the person... To not only ask the question, but to answer the question. Let's put it a little bit differently. Is it possible for a human being to know God? John's answer is yes. Jesus has made it possible. So we contrast the popular cultural view with the biblical view. John is establishing a concrete test to tell the believer from the self-confessed believer or the make-believer. By the way, when you look at the text, now by this we know. The, The word know translates a Greek word which means to know in fact. For those of you who are familiar with other languages, and many of you speak two or three different languages, in the Spanish language, there's two words for know. One is saber, and the other is conocer. For the Spanish speaker, if you say, hey, do you know something? you sí, yo sé, I, I know. But if you ask if you know a per, a, someone personally, you say something like, tu conoces ella, do you know her? But the word conocer means to know personally. It means to know personally. It isn't just that you're aware of their existence, but you know them personally because you have a relationship. And that's what this word is. It's the word that translates to know in person or to know in fact. And so when it says, now by this, we know, that is personally or in fact, that we know him if we keep his commandments. In that word, that single verse If you underline the word no, the next word you want to underline is keep. It translates a Greek word which means to guard or to treasure. The word is a word that you would use to describe if you were guarding or keeping a priceless treasure Here the word keep carries with it the idea of a careful watch coupled with security. Know him is more than, again, knowing that we're saved. It's abiding in Christ. So obedience then determines whether we have an intimate fellowship with God. And so that's the point that John is making. I told you that if I were to take the word communication and break it down into two words, I would use these two words to describe communication. Shared understanding. Communication isn't just simply someone talking. It has to mean someone listening and responding and having the ability to respond. If I were to take the word fellowship and then use two words to describe fellowship, it would be time, and talk, time, and talk. Every single relationship that you have, every real fellowship, every real friendship that you enjoy right at this very moment has to have those two qualities, don't they? In order to really have a relationship with someone or fellowship with someone, you have to spend time with them, and you have to talk to them. Time and talk. And so now we again ask the question, how can I know that I'm a Christian? And we discover something, that a real Christian takes time and talks with God through Jesus Christ. And then in friendship and fellowship with each other. So this passage gives us two ways to know. If you do what Christ says, and then you live the way that Jesus wants you to live. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Based on what the text says. When John says, now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments, the idea seems to be if you do what he says and you live the way that he wants, then the chances are you're going to be fine. Obedience confirms fellowship, which precedes joy. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments in John chapter 14, verse 15. Some of you may be pressed to think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this another sermon on legalism? No. I need you to understand something. Obedience to God's word and Christ's commandment isn't legalism but love. You see, we have to think that way. Remember what I just quoted to you. Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's his words, not mine. Obedience, therefore, can't be legalism. It must be love. The second is, I would say this. Legalism is when my opinion becomes your obligation. Is it my opinion... That you should keep his commandments. Or is it Jesus' command? What do you think? I've given you the passage. I'll give you another one. John 15, 10. Jesus said, if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love. Just as I've obeyed my father's commands. And I remain in his love. Remember, John's addressing both the Christian and he's addressing the make-believer. Or what you and I would call the Gnostic. Remember what a Gnostic is. A Gnostic is a self-described Christian who believes that knowledge is the key to salvation and fellowship and intimacy with God. Remember the Gnostics were that group of people who believed that in order to, to have a right relationship with God, you had to have secret knowledge about God. But the Gnostic was also convinced that superior knowledge, since it was the key to superior life, it didn't matter what you, how you you lived so the gnostic would argue it doesn't matter how i live because god loves me he loves me just the way that i am you mean in rebellion yeah in sin yeah in disobedience yeah you know it's really problematic it's part of their argument is true does god love the sinner Even when they're in rebellion and disobedience. Is there something about people that God loves and he cares about them? And the answer is yes. Does that mean that God wants the Christian to continue in rebellion and disobedience? The very fact that you have a right relationship with God in Christ means that the rebellion is over with. And you're now free to love him and serve him. And so John's argument begins with an appeal to knowledge. By this we know that we know him. It isn't just an appeal to knowledge. It's a knowledge that brings assurance. This is how we know that we know him. And it brings us the assurance Being saved isn't simply a sense of well-being in your heart. It's not even simply a religious experience or a euphoric event. Although these might accompany salvation. When I got saved, when I prayed to receive Christ as my Lord and my Savior, I, I remember distinctly feeling this absolute lifting of condemnation and guilt and cleansing. Maybe my experience isn't everybody's experience. But when I prayed for God to forgive me in Christ, I felt like I was forgiven. But I want to point out to you that it wasn't my feeling that informed the reality. The real reason why I was forgiven is because Of what we've already learned. Remember in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. If we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Based on how I feel. Or based on what he's promised. Based on what he's promised. And so if the apostle John wants the person who thinks. That secret knowledge is a big deal. That the real deal is that a person reflect the righteous character of Christ. So for the person who says, you know, God talks to me. He speaks to me and he's revealed secrets that only I know about. John yawns. (gasps) I'm not impressed. How do you really live your life? How do you live your life? Remember someone said that your character is what you do in the dark. It's not when the lights are on or the camera's rolling. Art Linkletter asked a little girl. He said to her, "You're on national TV and millions of people are watching you. What is the most important for a young what's the most important thing for a young lady to do when she's on national TV?" The little six-year-old girl said, my mother said, make sure that I keep my legs closed. (laughs) Well, we, we laugh because we understand something. That we live in a culture and a society that is predetermined that you're supposed to do certain things. You're at least supposed to have the appearance. And so John is making it abundantly clear that the person who has a righteous character marked by obedience to Christ's commands is the person... That's the most impressive person. The ancient Greeks embraced many many modern notions that are popular in the popular culture right now, including humanist notions and atheistic notions. There was an almost unlimited confidence in human reason. Many Greeks embraced the idea that human reason was sufficient to describe and explain reality and the human condition. In other words, they lived in a world where I can understand and I can relate Uh, a reality apart from God, apart from Revelation, apart from the Bible. I can explain the human condition and the human problem and what we have to do about it. And John's argument is, not really. Can a person know God simply on the basis of their mind or intellect? Uh, Imagine you live in a world where you walk outside these doors and you ask anybody... do you know God? And then they answer you. And you ask them the question, how do you know God? How do you know him? Well, I talk to him. And then what happens? He talks back. What does he say? He says this or that. And have you noticed that the God of many people's imagination doesn't require them to repent of their sin and doesn't require them to abandon wickedness. Their God doesn't require them to turn to Christ and to trust Him and to walk with Him. Can we think our way into a right relationship with God? apart from Christ, apart from the gospel? The Bible's answer is no. There are two serious flaws with this idea that you can think your way or reason your way to God apart from Revelation. James Montgomery Boyce writes, quote, First, it gives no adequate basis for ethics. A man could be a philosopher or knowing one and yet indulge in the depravity which infested paganism. Second, an intellectual knowledge of God didn't satisfy the whole man. For man is more than just intellect. Man wants to relate to the infinite, not merely contemplate it. So while the God of Plato and others could fill their mind, it didn't warm their heart or stir their emotion, which man desires. In other words, what God does in Christ is address the whole human You know, very smart people can fill their mind with thoughts about God. But will it cleanse your heart and satisfy your soul if you don't know him? I read, the pagan world was always haunted by the unknowability of God. At best, men could grope after his mystery. It's hard, said Plato to investigate and to find the framer and the father of the universe. And if one did find him, it would be impossible to express him in terms which everyone could understand, unquote. Aristotle spoke of God as the supreme cause by all men dream of and by all men are known. The ancient world did not know that there was a God or gods, but it believed that such gods as there were might be quite unknowable and only occasionally interested in mankind. In a world without Christ, God was a mystery and power, desirable, but never known, unquote. And so there are people like that in the world in which you live. Do you know God? Their answer might be, no one can know God. No one can know God. And if you said to them, But what if that's not true? What if it is possible to know God based on what God has revealed about himself in the person of Jesus Christ? The Greeks thought, well, if knowledge of God doesn't fill the void, maybe emotions will satisfy the soul. So the mystery religions developed with dancing and music, incense. This is even way before the 60s. In the first century, they had dancing, music, incense. Way before rock and roll, they were doing incense and peppermints. In order to alter their state of consciousness, they wanted to feel something powerful and visceral. And the pounding music and the, and the fragrances would, would stimulate the senses. There seemed to be a promise of an emotional union with God by ecstatic emotional services. And so the same thing again appears even at this very moment where people will go, hey, did you go to church? Yeah. How was it? It was great. Why was it great? Because I felt the presence of God. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. But imagine they also say, it wasn't great because I felt nothing. I felt nothing. As if the presence or the absence of God is based on the presence or the absence of what you feel or don't feel. The problem with emotional services is there needs to be an ever-increasing emotion. I call it the law of diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns is if you feel a certain way, then there's this expectation that if you have to feel that way again and again and again. People want teaching and touching. It makes perfect sense to me that people want to know God with their brain. It makes perfect sense to me that they want to experience experience God with their heart and with their emotion and John is presenting a Jesus that it isn't just John John is saying that Jesus is neither devoid of teaching or of emotion. Knowledge of Jesus is personal and practical. Knowledge of Jesus is satisfying Because Jesus isn't simply an idea or a theological construct, but Jesus is a real person. So John isn't inviting you to know God by simply thinking thoughts about God or even feeling feelings about God. Each and every one of you probably had a point in your life where you looked at another person and you go, That person's attractive to me. I think I'd like to know them. And you begin to think about them. And you may even have enough courage to talk to them. By the way, could things change once you know them? Everybody shakes their head yes. Because thinking about a person and feeling something for a person is different from actually knowing them. When you meet Jesus, you don't simply change your mind. You also change your behavior. And this seems to be part of the argument that John is making. He doesn't just simply say, I want you to think differently about Jesus or I want you to even think differently about your sin that a real encounter with Jesus changes you. So the Greek was stuck between the choice of cold rationalism and passing contentless experience And John offers a solution that isn't one or the other. Any ancient Greek would have agreed with the first part of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So the Lord glories in this. He says, don't let people just... Explode with the knowledge of who I am, but what it means to know me and to love me. The fact that God practices kindness and God practices judgment and practices righteousness would have been totally alien. To that culture and society. So when you talk and you say, Do you believe in God? And almost everyone will say yes. There'll be a handful of people that will say no. But for the 90% of people who believe in God and you ask them the question, Describe or describe to me or tell me what you believe about God. Is God kind? Is God generous? Is God personal? Is he righteous? Is he a God who is holy? What does God believe about justice and righteousness and kindness and holiness? Ask them what they believe. And almost invariably, they'll talk about a loving God. And they'll even talk about a kind God. But the unbeliever will rarely, rarely talk about a righteous God. A a God who actually knows the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. Who loves what is good and hates what is evil. And rarely will they describe a God that you can have a personal relationship with. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34... Jeremiah describes knowledge of God that people will possess in the latter days. He writes and he says, this is what it's going to be like at the end of time. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. But this verse is preceded by a statement of how all this is going to happen. The statement right before says, quote, I will put my law in their mind. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then it's followed by an ethical statement. I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah describes a God who knows the truth about your condition, who knows the truth about your sin and your wickedness, but who's willing to love you and forgive you and cleanse you. John argues the person who knows God will be changed by God. I want you to hold on to that for just a moment. The person who knows God will be changed by God. So imagine you say to a person, do you know God? And they say yes. And you ask the question, can you tell me how he's changed your life? Can you tell me how he's changed your life? I remember the exciting testimony of a particular person who said, I don't know about Jesus turning water into wine, but I know that he could turn beer into furniture. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, I used to be a drunk. Instead of spending my money on getting drunk, I saved my money and I bought furniture for my wife and for my family. He's describing someone who's been changed. That coming into a right relationship with God changes you. This is the first test of whether a person knows God. People who say they know God but who live in willful, flagrant, disobedience, a lifestyle of sin. I'm not talking about a lapse. I'm not talking about a fall. I'm not talking about an event of disobedience. I'm talking about a lifestyle of disobedience. So what does knowing God mean? John's answer is that you know and experience someone who changes you personally. Let me put it to you another way. For those of you who are married, you met your wife and you knew her. Husbands, did your wife change your life? Hopefully the answer is yes. Wives, when you met your husband and you married your husband, did your husband change your life? Mothers, did your children change your life? Friends, Have you ever had a relationship with a person and tragically they died? And in a moment of testimony, maybe at their funeral, you said, he changed my life. My life was different because of my friendship or my fellowship. That's what he's talking about. A willingness to do this is evidence of the supernatural work of God. And this is what Paul meant when he tells the Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. It isn't you pretending to be different, but it's you Different because of what God has done inside of you. And then he talks about failing the test in verse 4. Look what it says in verse 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. So he's talked about a test and now he's going to talk about what happens when you fail the test. And he's going to introduce two characters in verse 4 and verse 5. They're different from one another. He does this to make the test concrete. The first person says, I know him. But he fails to keep his commandments. By the way, I guess I should say something very quickly about commandments. The word that he uses here, I think, in the, in the general sense, is a word that describes the divine will. However, revealed in his word in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word... It's singular. It seems to mean a compilation of everything that God has said. But most specifically, I think it's a reference to who Jesus is and what Jesus says. The reason why I think that is because John in the opening of his gospel says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so in this particular sense, it means The revelation of God that takes place by God sending Jesus. Jesus reveals God to the watching world. And so it's what Jesus has to say. And most especially, I think, it means Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, where it talks about, and this is the commandment of Jesus, that you bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So I think in a very broad sense, it means the divine revelation given in Christ. And then it means everything that Jesus has asked us to do. And so the first person says, I know him, but fails to keep his commandments. In what sense? Jesus has asked you to do stuff and you don't do it. The second person keeps his word. And look what it says. And the love of God is perfected in him in verse five. John makes the statement, The first person's a liar. Does that seem a little harsh to you? For some of you, it might seem harsh. For others, you might go, by the way, I don't need to see a show of hands. You can just quietly answer in your own heart. How many of you appreciate honesty and directness? Some of you want to put your hand up anyway, which is fine. Yeah. You appreciate honesty and directness. John makes the statement, the first person's a liar and the truth's not in him. How can he make that statement? Because John says what we all know. What you were taught by maybe your mother, your father, your grandmother, grandfather. Did anyone ever say to you, actions speak louder than... Oh, you know that one. A person can say something or say they believe something. The person isn't simply naive or seduced by false teachers or unfamiliar with Christ's commands. This is a person who seems to be professing something that they know isn't true. I think back to the time again when a person asked me the question, are you a Christian? And I said, of course I am. I'm a Catholic. But everything I said wasn't In my own twisted way of thinking, I I think I could self-describe myself as a Catholic, but I wasn't a good Catholic by any stretch of the imagination. I wasn't a person who went to Mass or went to confession every week. I didn't try to be a good Catholic. It wasn't even a part of, of who I even remotely thought that I was. And I said something that just simply wasn't true, and I knew it wasn't true. The truth wasn't in me. I could safely say I was a Christian. But my life was disconnected from Christ. And my life was disconnected from Christians. And my life was disconnected from the revelation of God in Christ. Would it have been fair for me to say that I'm a Christian? And anyone who says I am a Christian but they're disconnected from Christ and they're disconnected from Christians and they're disconnected from the revelation of God in Christ aren't making a factual statement. So what is John saying? The person who says they know God but live like the devil can't be trusted to be a source of spiritual truth. That seems fair to you, I hope. If a person says, I know God, but they live like the devil, that's not the person you want to go to for advice, for wisdom, for insight. The false professors and the false teachers in John's day were make believers. Truth is not simply the factual statements that correspond to reality, but they're also backed up by a godly life. And so this is the point that John is making. Is it possible that the unbeliever or the make-believer can say something that's true about God and true about Christ, but it's not true in their life? Well, yeah. So what is John saying? a godly Bible teacher's teaching should be backed up by his or her life. Unless there's an observable godliness in their life, the Bible teacher's teaching about God, I think can't be trusted. So if a person is a preacher and they're living in willful rebellion and disobedience, should that be a source of, For me and for you. I think that the answer is no. And so he talks about passing the test. Look what it says in verses five and six. But whoever keeps his word. Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. That is in fellowship with God. I'm going to suggest to you fellowship with Christ. And also fellowship with each other. So John now introduces the second person, the one who keeps his word. The person isn't making exaggerated claims about themselves. He, he doesn't simply just simply say, when you ask him the question, are you a Christian? They don't just simply say yes. Imagine if someone asked you that question. Are you a Christian? And you said something different Then, yes, I believe in Jesus and I'm a Christian. What if you answered this way? How would you do? Look at my life and tell me what you think. Look at my life and tell me what you think. Tell me how I conduct myself with you and with others. Tell me how I speak. Tell me how I act. Tell me how I behave. Here, his word means his revelation in its totality. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God, is perfected. And again, here, perfected means complete. In this person, in contrast to the other person in verse 4, the love of God is perfected. The person in in verse four, the love of God is not perfected. The person in verse five, the love of God is perfected. And in the Greek language, the word contains what's known as the genitive. And it's really difficult for me to explain this, but let me give it a shot. It means that the word can be taken in one of three ways. The love of God is perfected. If God is the subject, this is number one, if God is the subject and the reference is to God's love for us, then it would seem to mean truly the love of God, that is, it is the love of God, that's what's perfected. Or number two, it could refer to our love for God, that is, God as the object of our affection or devotion. Or number three, it might mean the quality of love that's divine love. That is, the love of the very nature of God. In my way of thinking, I think the second meaning best fits the context. That is, if a person really loves God, you're going to seek to please God by obeying him. So what does it mean the love of God is perfected? It may mean God's love for people. Or it may mean a godly kind of love, or it may mean a person's love for God. Would it be wrong to think of all three? I, I think not. And he says, By this we know that we're in him. By what? By this we know that we're in him. By what? By this. John seems to be saying, We love the Lord. Because we know the Lord. Later, he's, we're going to discover something. We love him because we know him. But John's going to reiterate, but guess what? He loved you first. He knew you first. We love him, but he loved us first. By this, we know him. Knowing the Lord Jesus and loving the Lord Jesus results in obedience to the Lord Jesus and so in verse 6 it says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. This is John's way of saying, Salvation isn't simply imitation, but identification. I happen to be reading for the last couple of days, The Looming Tower, when the Pulitzer Prize. It tells the story of radical Islam and their journey to the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York and the presence of radical Islam in the world. And in radical Islam, Muslims want to recreate the world of the seventh century, of Muhammad. So the observant Muslim wants to Wear a turban like Muhammad and grow a beard like Muhammad and have wives like Muhammad. Just like Christians have the WWJD, who wants Jack Daniels? That's not what it means. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Muslims have this thing where they want to do what Muhammad would do. And so here in verse 6, is this John's way of saying, do we want to... Imitate Christ in the sense that grow a beard, wear robes, become a Jewish rabbi? Is that, do you suppose, what he's talking about in the passage? I don't think so. I think what he's talking about is that our relationship and fellowship and love prove that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, it means to live or to dwell ought himself also to walk as he walked. We're not called to to mimic Christ, but to walk as he walked. And this is an idiomatic expression, which means to live like he lived, not simply by the rules, but his example. We're disciples. We're current followers of Jesus. Our discipleship is active and expensive. Well, what do I mean? I mean, it's active because Jesus is alive. He's a person. He's not just something you believe in because you read about it in the book. It's personal because he's personal. It's active because he's alive. You're not a Christian simply because you used to be or could be or because you're not a Buddhist or a Hindu or a pagan. And it's costly because the road Jesus walked is going to eventually lead to Calvary. And so, when we combine what is being said with what John says elsewhere and what Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. When you walk with Jesus and you ask the question, where are you going? If you're going to follow him, you're going to follow him in the direction that he's going. And his life is a life of sacrifice and selflessness that's going to result in Calvary. But the good news is it's also going to result in a resurrection from the dead. If you walk the way he walked, then you run the risk of dying the kind of death that he died but the good news is that you will experience a resurrection just like he experienced so walk is a word that describes action and devotion we're called to die to ourselves pick up the cross follow jesus we follow in his steps how did jesus walk in complete and submission in submission and obedience to his father. In John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. So apparently we walk not in darkness. We walk in the light. Darkness is a picture of sin and light is a picture of the revelation and the character of God. The world by wisdom knew not God, it says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, The world was blind to the truth. So to apparently walk the way he walked, it means you walk in truth, you walk in light, you walk in hope, you walk in wisdom, you walk in love. When the Pharisees and the religious leaders refused to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, Jesus stated that his obedience to the Father is what proved his deity. He said, I do always those things that please him in John chapter eight, verse 29. To walk as Jesus walked means to love what he loves. It means to hate what he hates. It means compassion and sensitivity. And so when you walk as Jesus walked, you hate sin. When you walk as Jesus walked, you practice self-sacrifice and self-sacrificing love. Jesus is always concerned about rightly representing God. You know, there's a story in baseball about Earl Weaver. That may not be a name that you know. He was a manager of the Baltimore Orioles and on the team was a born-again believer named Pat Kelly. And as the story goes, Kelly is said to, to have told Weaver that he had learned To walk with God, to which Weaver reported sarcastically, look, I'd rather you walk when the bases are loaded. Why did he say that? Because he didn't have any idea what he was talking about. The people in the world will have no idea what you're talking about if you say, I walk with God. I walk with Jesus. I want to follow in his steps. So why is obedience important? When we obey God's agenda, we have to abandon our own agenda. Do you realize that? The moment that you say, I'm going to obey God, you must of necessity say, I guess I'm not going to do what I want to do in this circumstance. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. By the way, obedience to Jesus produces humility. Obedience to Jesus doesn't come naturally to proud people. Obedience acknowledges God's sovereignty over our lives and leads to blessing. And it also demonstrates our love for God and it reflects how Jesus lived. Obedience to God leads to fulfilling relationships. And it's evidence that we truly know him. But it also reveals our destiny. It doesn't just simply talk about what we are. It talks about what we will become. And that's why you hear me quote so often 1 John chapter 3. If you turn the page and in verses one through three, look what it says, behold what manner of love the father has showed us or behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we're the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what, that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. John will later say, it's proof, positive, that you're going to be like him. And this is exactly what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, when he says, "Well, I'm going to turn there because I don't want to misquote it. But in Romans eight twenty eight, it talks about, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called, and those he called, he justified. And those he he justified, he also glorified. So you begin with him. And you end being like him. And by the way, we also fulfill the great commission in Matthew 28. Go into all of the world. Disciple all the nations teaching them to observe everything that I have taught you. Do you need to walk away from sin? Do you sense that God's asking you to take steps of obedience in your life? And I challenge you. I challenge you. The next time a person asks you this question, are you a Christian? That your answer is, what does my life tell you about what I really believe? That's the first test. more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father Lord we are challenged but we also know that Lord you're calling us to a life of submission and humility and obedience that Lord you want to deal with our pride that you want us to acknowledge the sovereignty that, that you want to express over our lives knowing that it will lead to blessing. And again, Father, we know, we know, we know, we know. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance and gives us the strength to walk away from that rebellion and that life of disobedience so that we can walk with you. Truth. And so again, Father, we pray as men and women who know you and love you, That we could take the test, pass the test, instead of fail the test. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.